0: And welcome to A Flat Pack History of Sweden. I am Elsa.
1: And I am Chris. And this is episode 41, The History of Gotland So Far.
0: Nice. Over the past 40 or so episodes, we've taken you on a journey from when the first humans arrived in Sweden up until 1266, when Bia Jarl died, which we covered back in episode 40. But for the vast majority of this narrative, we have focused on mainland Sweden, plus, of course, adventures and expeditions in Norway, Denmark, Finland and further east. But in this episode, we are going to fill in a bit of a blank spot on the map so far. And that is the island of Gotland. This is a 120 kilometer long and 56 kilometer wide island in the middle of the Baltic Sea, south of Stockholm and west of Latvia and we have almost ignored it in our narrative so far because we wanted to give it its own episode and for reasons that will become evident going forward it has made sense to leave it until now.
1: But before we talk about this lovely island, let's give you your Swedish phrase of the week, which is Sälj inte äggen innan älgen är skjuten, och sälja skinnet innan björnen är skjuten. So that's don't sell the egg before the moose is shot or don't sell the hide before the bear is shot. Uh, so please explain, Orsa.
0: <laughs> yeah, bit of a funny one, this one. It's it's basically the two phrases mean the same thing and uh, both are used in uh, in Swedish. The meaning is to don't take something for granted before the thing that needs to happen first has happened. So don't do B or don't expect B before you've done A. Don't sell your eggs because you think you're not going to need any eggs because you're going to eat moose, but don't sell them until you've shot the moose. Or don't sell the hide before you've actually shot the bear that the hide is on, if that makes any sense.
1: And if you're thinking it sounds very familiar to an English phrase, you're correct. It's very much the Swedish equivalent of don't count your chickens before they hatch. And uh, maybe it says something about Swedish nature and lifestyle that instead we talk about moose and bears and hide instead.
0: Yeah, but the the meaning is the same as uh, don't count your chickens before they hatch.
1: Indeed, and uh, thank you for explaining. But now back to Gotland, and the reason why we've left Gotland until episode 41 is because it's really only at this sort of time in our journey through Swedish history in the last maybe 50, 100 years or so that the relationship with Sweden is starting to get a bit more formalized. Up until now, Gotland has either been completely independent from mainland Sweden or loosely tied to the kingdom in some way. We'll explain this more as we go, but if you think of maybe Puerto Rico, the unincorporated territory of the United States, and make that relationship even more loose and vague, then that's sort of what we're getting at here. But we should probably start at the very beginning, and the very, very beginning.
0: Indeed we should. The island's existence began about 400 million years ago, uh, give or take a few dozen million years, uh, in the Silurian Sea, as animals, corals and plants died and sank into the sediment that eventually became the limestone foundation of modern Gotland. As a result of this formation, everywhere you go around the coast of Gotland, you can find fossils of these plants and animals, which uh, is pretty cool. You will also find quarries for limestone around the island, which is a significant industry there, thanks to its uh, geology and its origins. Skipping forward a huge amount of time, we come to when the first humans arrived to the island. The first ones arrived by boat, not surprisingly, during the Stone Age around 5000 years ago. These would have lived a similar lifestyle to the Stone Age Swedes we encountered in our very first episodes.
1: Yes. From now on, they have their own name, so they could basically called Gotlanders. These Gotlanders will live a pretty similar life to these Stone Age Swedes, as we said, all the way up until the Bronze Age, which is about 1800 to 500 BCE. Then in the Bronze Age, you can find all over Gotland graves that uh, look, for example, like the ship tumulus that we mentioned back in Sweden and many other different types of cairns. And from the Bronze Age, there are around 400 cairns and 350 stone ships on Gotland that have survived to the modern day. That's an astonishing amount for a relatively small place. You can also add to this an incredible number of prehistoric grave fields, plus the remains of houses, settlements, hill forts and runestones. If you add all of this up, you reach over 3,000 registered sites, which makes Gotland the richest archaeological region in Sweden. But it's in the Iron and Viking Ages where Gotland really starts to shine. Yes,
0: this is because the island was increasingly powerful during the early Viking Age and there's so much to say about Gotland during the Viking Age that we're really just uh, giving you a more brief summary here but uh, you can go and continue your research on your own and uh, you'll find a very rich history.
1: And especially if you want to look into specific archaeological sites, they're always finding new stuff on Gotland.
0: Yeah, and as you can imagine, from all the sites, there has been a lot of archaeological research taking place on Gotland. Uh, This has revealed that there were around 40 harbours and trading centres existing during the Viking Age, taking advantage of the brilliant strategic location of the island – If you wanted to go east or west, then it's likely you would pass Scotland, especially if you plan to stop off in Sweden to do some more trading. Since before the Viking period, the island has been called, quote, an independent republic of seafaring farmers. And its location quickly made it one of the major trading hubs in northern Europe. Uh, Just remember all those Swedish Vikings heading out east to trade and to settle, to explore and plunder? Well, Gotland was the perfect place to stop off on the way, sell your best pieces before heading home or heading somewhere else, uh, going here, there and everywhere. Gotland is really... Brilliant location for Baltic Sea trading and traveling.
1: And when it comes to evidence for this fluid trade system, more than 700 silver hoards have been found on Gotland. And if you add up all the coins from these hoards, they reach around 180,000 coins.
0: Wow, that is a fair few coins.
1: Yeah, I think it would probably fill up our flat if we had them all <laughs> yeah. here at once. We'd have to swim through them all. Oh. But By comparison, only 80,000 coins have been found in hordes on all of mainland Sweden, which is 100 times larger and had 10 times the population of Gotland at the time. And Sweden only had about 300 Viking Age hordes compared to the 700 on Gotland, so that's why Gotland had 100,000 more coins. And um, for example, on Gotland you have the Spilling's Horde, or in Swedish the Spillingskatten. This is the world's largest Viking silver find. It was discovered in 1999 in a field at the Spilling farm, which gives it the name the Spilling Horde, and that's in northern Gotland. This hoard had a total weight of a staggering 67 kilograms or 148 pounds before the conservation work started on it. It had over 14,000 coins, most of which were Islamic. In fact, there were 14,200 Islamic dirhams. The earliest coin, one from Persia, dates from 539, and the latest coin in the hoard dates from 870 AD. So naturally we can assume that the hoard was deposited at some point in or after 870, Uh, of course we don't know when.
0: One person looking into all these finds and looking into Viking Age Gotland in general is archaeologist Don Carlson, who runs an archaeological company on the island. He says there are traces of around 60 Viking Age coastal settlement on the island. Many of them were simple, small fishing villages or hamlets with jetties ready for nearby farms. One of the prominent villages was called Frøyell, uh, and people were active there from around 600 to 1150 CE. About 10 of these coastal settlements eventually grew into small towns, and Frejel was one of these.
1: There have been plenty of excavations at Threuil, and they have found a great deal of fascinating finds. They've found antlers from mainland Sweden, glass from Italy, amber from Poland or Lithuania, rock crystal from the Caucasus, gemstones from eastern trading centers, and even a clay egg from the Kiev area that some say have some sort of resemblance to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's been carved.
0: Wow. It was this trade, shown in the widespread origin of the goods found at Fröjell, that sustained Gotland and eventually gave it great influence. German traders, the likes of which we've seen in previous episodes, with their connection to kings of Sweden and helping to found places like Stockholm, They also had a huge part to play in the expansion and power of Gotland before they even came to Sweden proper. Silver mining really became a big thing in the end of the 10th century down in Germany. As a result, high-quality silver coins from Germany started entering the Baltic trade network and the Gotlanders absolutely got involved. These coins helped greased the wheels of trade and again helped concentrate trade around Gotland for those heading north to Stockholm or east to Novgorod and surrounding areas, or west to Denmark and beyond.
1: However, in 1055, coins from Thracia in northern Germany became debased and as a result the Gotlanders halted the imports of all German coins ingots from the east became the island's main source of silver, and these ingots weren't turned into coins, but traded and exchanged as they were, at least at first. And ingot, by the way, are those big blocks of gold or silver that you're probably more familiar with in sort of like Pirates of the Caribbean <laughs> type things, I like get the silver, the bars of silver and stuff, all that's held in places like Fort Knox and banks and things. Um, and moving on in time, once we reached the 1140s, people on Gotland started to mint their own coins. And this meant that Gotland actually became the first authority in the eastern Baltic area to make their own coins. And they don't have a king that's producing these coins, they're just producing them as themselves, as a region. Maivo Ostergren, an archaeologist who studied the island silver hoards, has been quoted as saying that Gotlandic coins were used on mainland Sweden and in the Baltic countries. So they're sharing them around as they go trading. And whereas Gotlanders had valued foreign coins based on their weight alone, these Gotlandic coins, the domestic coins, Though sometimes quickly hammered out into a rather regular shape, they had a generally accepted value. So one coin was a $5 coin, for example. And even if it looked a bit rough, it was still a $5 coin. Whereas foreign coins, when they arrived in Gotland they were just put on a scale and weighed and say, Oh, how much silver is in this? Okay, it's worth $3, even though it looks might look the same as a $5 coin.
0: That's an interesting difference. It has been estimated that the Gotlanders made more than 8 million of these early Gotlandic coins between around 1140 and 1220. 22,000 or so have survived to the modern day, with around half of these being found on the island itself. Like with all good opportunities to make a lot of money, the Baltic region soon saw arguments and conflict between various groups of traders all trying to make the most money for themselves. It is thought that Gotland began making coins to take advantage of new trading opportunities that were created because of conflict amongst trading groups in Sweden and Novgorod. Having their own coins and a steady source of them meant that Gotland could make direct trading agreements with Novgorod and with places and rulers to the islands southwest, uh, which included Denmark and northern Germany.
1: Yes, Gotland's new coins helped smooth trade even more between its eastern and western trading partners and brought extra profit to elite traders and merchants on the island through taxes, fees and customs duties levied on those traders that came to visit. However, in order to stop people sneaking in at one of these many small harbours and the village jetties and potentially avoiding a tax collector or customs officials... Trade was concentrated on the town of Visby, which quickly became the hub for trade and remains Gotland's biggest town to this day. However, this of course meant that the rest of Gotland's trading harbours and towns, including the previously reliable and steady Froyel, saw a remarked decline in their fortunes from the 1150s because the officials are literally telling people, don't go there, go to Visby.
0: So we can see that Gotland is certainly doing well for itself, but was it really Swedish? Björn Neerman, a historian working in the 1910s to 1940s, he wrote that Sweden took control of Gotland in the 600s. But Neermann also believes that the mythical kings from the 600s and so that we, and most importantly, more modern historians disregard, while well, he believed they were actually real. Most historians don't believe that this was the case, that Sweden took control over Gotland already in the 600s. In fact, almost all Swedish historians nowadays say that Gotland was nearly fully independent until the end of the 1200s, with just the occasional treaty made between Gotland and mainland Sweden. But this being done from a position of two partners rather than Sweden dictating terms to one of its provinces. Just one example of why historians believe Gotland to be quite independent until much later actually comes from everyone's favourite, Snorri Sturluson. Way, no way for Snorri. No way. <laughs> no, he's very popular with our listeners. Olof Rydberg says that Snorri's description of Gotland in the Heimskringla clearly shows that Gotland was independent of Sweden at the time of Olaf Sjöldkönung and Olav Trygvasson. so that's in the late 900s. That's because Snorri writes in Olav Tryggvason's saga that Gotland was attacked by the Norwegians at the time that Sweden was allied to Norway, and This wouldn't be logical or very friendly if Gotland did belong to the Swedes, which I think we can all agree with. If you want to look into the historiography of the history of Gotland, then there's a great book called Islands of Identity by Samuel Edqvist and Janne Holmen, which discusses how the view of Gotland's history has changed throughout the past 200 years or so.
1: Yeah, out with the old crazy uh, historians who just believe something because they wanted to, and in with a more uh, archaeological-based and fact-based history. And uh, But talking of this, the fact-based history, where do we get a lot of our evidence from for the history of Gotland? We actually only have one nearly contemporary source called the Goethe Saga, written in the 13th or perhaps 14th century. Uh, We read a translation of the Goethe Saga and some analysis of it written by Christine Ingergerd Peel, which was freely available on the internet at the University College London's website if people are interested in finding it. The Gutesaga is a short, legendary, hence the name, saga, history of the island of Gotland. It gives a lot of detail, some of it very saga-esque when we think about it, uh, about the history of the island, but also mentions the relationship between Sweden and Gotland. It's worth reading a bit of this saga out, like always, partly because it's fun, but also because historians think it's quite informative. This first part is about a treaty the Gotlanders supposedly signed with the Swedish king.
0: Because he was wise and skilled in many things, just as the tales go about him, he entered into a binding treaty with the king of the Swedes. Sixty marks of silver in respect of each year is the Gotlanders' tax, Divided such that the king of Sweden should have 40 marks of silver out of the 60 and the jarl 20 marks of silver. Auver made this statute in accordance with the advice of the people of the island before he left home. In this way, the Gotlanders submitted to the king of Sweden of their own free will, in order that they might travel everywhere in Sweden, free and unhindered, exempt from toll and all other charges. Similarly, the Swedes should also have the right to visit Gotland, without prohibition against trade in corn or other prohibitions. The king was obliged to give the Gotlanders protection and assistance, if they should need it and request it. In addition, the king and likewise the jarl should send messengers to the Gotlanders' general assembly and arrange for their tax to be collected there. The messengers in question have a duty to proclaim the freedom of Gotlanders to visit all places overseas which belong to the king in Uppsala and similarly for such as have the right to travel here from that side.
1: Yeah, so this is actually really interesting the Gotlanders pay some money to the king and also, very interestingly, after the boja episodes to the Jarl, and then they get lots of trading uh, benefits from going up to Sweden, but also let the Swedes in. And so that shows you that they can't have been part of Sweden if this treaty was letting the Swedes in, because it was part of their own country. They would be able to go there anyway.
0: So that's nice. It's always nice to have a a big brother nearby that can extend some uh, cover for you when you're a small island like Gotland
1: exactly uh, the saga then relates how the Bishop of Linshoping was asked to come to Gotland every third year to consecrate churches and take the Christianized island under his wing. And we actually looked at this in a previous episode when, back in 1225, Bishop Pielbu wrote a letter accepting the German Traders Church of St. Mary into the Bishopric of Linshoping. This is why some historians believe that Hyperbole aside, the Gutasaga can be seen as being at least a bit reliable, if, as always, not for dates and details, but certainly for broad themes. But it's the relationship with the King of Sweden that is most important. After all, religious authority can transcend national boundaries quite easily at this point, because remember, the Archbishop of Lund in Denmark is still in charge of appointing the Archbishop of Uppsala at the time of Birger Jarl. So it isn't very strange that the Bishop of Linköping might have ecclesiastical power over a part of the world that isn't Swedish political territory.
0: There did seem to be a treaty between the two regions regarding going to war as well, but the Gotlanders did not want to fight other Christians and imposed other stipulations on when and how they would fight. Uh, How about you read that bit out from the saga?
1: Since the Gotlanders accepted bishop and priest and completely embraced Christianity, they also undertook, on their part, to follow the Swedish king on war parties with seven warships against heathen countries, but not against Christian ones. However, it had to be in such a way that the king should summon the Gotlanders to the levee after winter, and give them a month's respite before the day of mobilisation, and furthermore the day of mobilisation should be before midsummer, and no later. Then it is a lawful summons, but not otherwise. Then the Gotlanders have the choice of travelling, if they are willing, with their longships and eight weeks' provisions, but not more. Nevertheless, if the Gotlanders are not able to take part, Then they are to pay a fine of 40 marks in coin, in compensation for each longship. But this, however, is at the following harvest, and not in the same year that the summons was made. This is called the levy tax.
0: Wow, it's quite bureaucratic!
1: Yeah, and it's interesting how they have to pay 40 marks for each longship they don't send when they send the Swedish king and Jarl you know, 60 in total for the whole year. So it shows you how much the longship's meant to the Swedish king.
0: Yeah. And by including these references to Gotland's independence from the Swedish kings, the writers of the Gusta saga were keen to express not just their history, but also their political standpoint when it came to international relations. Interestingly, just like how a list of Swedish kings was attached to the Westgötta law, the Gusta saga was actually attached to a law as well. This was called, no surprise, the Guta Law, and it was a compendium of laws valid on Gotland, and it is thought to have been written down in around 1220. Among other things, it sadly includes rules regarding purchasing slaves or thralls. In a sort of modern quirk, it says that when you bought a slave, you were allowed a six-day trial period. Uh, If you didn't like the slave or they couldn't perform the tasks you wanted to, uh, you could take them back and get your money back. Uh, Very much like buying a new car or something these days.
1: Yeah, that's pretty grim when it applies to people, sadly. But for now, we've seen how Gotland developed from being a relatively regular outpost of Stone Age and Bronze Age civilization before this trade business really took hold in the Viking Age to make Gotland stand out from the pack. They took plenty of independent business decisions around coinage, for example, and remained independent in various wars between the Scandinavian kingdoms, as well as how they fit into the religious network around Europe. But it's their skill at trade and their prime location in the Baltic Sea that really makes Gotland stand out, in both the period up to Biryar's death and for quite a while after it too. We're now going to look at the network of German traders around the Baltic Sea in detail for the rest of this episode and see how this becomes the thing in Gotland.
0: Yes, and for those reading ahead, this isn't exactly the Hanseatic League just yet, but it's certainly the foundation of that organisation. Rolf hamel writing in Donald Harrell's A Companion to the Hanseatic League, says it is important to see the difference. He writes... Strictly speaking, one should speak of the Hansa not before 1358, although the term is already used to refer to groups of low German merchants previously. However, the essential characteristics and especially their purpose and privileges based on foreign trade were already present in the 13th century. So with that in mind, let's look at trade.
1: As we've seen, the initial development of the trading system had been growing since the Bronze Age, really, but it was in the turn of the millennium, as we enter the 11th century, that things really kicked off. Back in the time of Ullukhörkunung, the trade routes were ruled by the Danes and the Swedes in the west, as well as by the Kievan Rus and their tributary princes in Novgorod. Traders had to follow the rules of the kings and the rulers of these areas, and wealth started to flood into the area. Rolf Hamel Kiesel has identified three main trade routes and two main economic areas at this point. The first economic region was roughly southern Sweden and the north German coast, plus Denmark and Poland. This area supported intensive trade and exchange that needed coins for local trade. The second region was the Eastern Baltic states, Novgorod, Russia, but crucially also Gotland. They used more of a direct exchange for trade, one cow for three axes, for example.
0: Yeah, that exchange rate is completely made up, of course. Yes,
1: made up by us.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, To get between and around these regions, Rolf Ham Kiesov have identified three main routes – The first targeted Danish and Swedish territories. Coins from Cologne and the Frankish realm came by boat up the Rhine and from the North Sea. The second route went east to the eastern Baltic and Novgorod. It went north along the eastern Swedish coast, connecting the Lake Mälaren region with Lake Ladoga, going via the Orland Islands and through the Neva River. And the third route was in the western Slavic region, uh, sort of modern-day Poland and the north coast of Germany, and that route went over land. This was mainly used by merchants from Saxony in Germany, but of course could also be travelled on sea from Denmark along the south of the Baltic. In the mixing zone, so to speak, between the Slavic region and northern Germany, there were a number of key towns, including Old Lübeck, which we will return to in a bit, and another key town at this time was Siegtuna, which we have mentioned a lot, uh, especially when we visited it, in the late 1000s, Western trade seems to have been facilitated by the so-called Frisian guild in Sigtuna around sort of, 1070.
1: Two of the runestones in Sigtuna, not two that we went to see unfortunately, uh, mentioned that Frisian guilds were in the town. This would have been an association or group of merchants from what is now the Netherlands and Belgium So this shows that there were trading contacts in Sweden from as far away in the west as the North Sea. However, perhaps the most important town right now, a real hub for facilitating trade between the Baltic Sea in the east and west central Europe, was the city of Schleswig, that's right near the modern-day German and Danish border. Here, coins from the west were converted into the type of economic system used in the Baltic region. Adam of Bremen, that great source we use quite a lot when looking at this time period, said that ships were constantly leaving Schleswig to sail east to go and visit the Slavs, Sweden and Novgorod. And this was really the place to be if you wanted to make a lot of money.
0: And there were three main groups of people interested in making money from this burgeoning trade network. The church, the merchants and the nobility. One key figure taking advantage of this as we head into the 1100s was the Holy Roman Emperor Lothar III. He took personal control of the German coastal region, built a large castle and got directly involved in the trade. In fact, in 1134 he awarded legal protection and trade privileges to the traders from Gotland. That is because Gotland had started to become its own major hub, a place for exchange and shipping all across the Baltic. Between the 1120s and 1140s, Gotland started to become a more open place for trade. Until this point, it seemed to have only really welcomed large groups of Swedes and Rus or traders from Novgorod. Uh, It started to allow Western and Southern European traders in, and thus becoming a huge hub for the next 150 years or so.
1: This was also at the same time that Novgorod was expanding itself, after its independence from the Rus in Kiev, because remember originally they were part of the main Rus, and then they went out on their own. However, this Novgorod independence did mean quite a reduction in the trade coming all the way up from Constantinople, as the Rus wouldn't take it much further than their lands. And in turn, this was a bit of a nail in the coffin for Sigtun up in Lake Malaren. This would eventually lead Birger Jarl and other key Swedish figures at the time to focus on finding a better, more practical location, a place that would eventually become Stockholm the improved relationship between Gotland, Novgorod, and northern Germany would start to really shape the future of the Baltic Sea for quite a long time to come. It was gradually improved on and strengthened, for example in 1191 or 1192, when a treaty was signed between these three groups to ensure that merchants and diplomats from their regions had the right to sail between Germany, Gotland, and Novgorod unhindered. Starting back in the 1140s, the key place in northern Germany was Lübeck. Old Lübeck had been destroyed in 1138 by some angry Slavs after the death of Lothar III, and after being slowly rebuilt, the new Lübeck was granted its first city charter in 1143 it quickly started to act like a local vacuum cleaner, hoovering up all the good local trading opportunities in the area.
0: Merchants began leaving nearby towns such as Bardevik, which was famous for its herring trade, and relocating to this new Lübeck, which was in a much better position. This made controlling Lübeck an attractive proposition for nearby nobles and it was soon taken over by Henry the Lion, Duke of Saxony and Duke of Bavaria. A very powerful man and he saw the potential of Lübeck and ordered an even better rebuilding process in 1159. However, the growth of business was initially pretty slow, as the northern German traders moving to Lübeck had a problem. They didn't have many ships. So, in 1159, the same year as the rebuilding of the city, the traders asked Henry to, quote, "...send messengers into the main towns and kingdoms of the north," Denmark, Sweden, Norway and Russia and offer them peace and access to free trade in his city Lübeck.
1: And that's exactly what he did. He wrote this letter and traders from Novgorod, Normandy, Sweden, Erland, and Gotland, and people from the Eastern Baltic were given an exemption of customs duties, something that was still in place in a Lübeck municipal law written up 70 years later in the 1220s or 1230s. Lübeck was now in direct competition with Schleswig to the west, and Henry was trying to encourage more and more traders to use his city instead of their rival. In the end, a shorter route to the Baltic that Lübeck had, this better legal protection for visiting merchants and easier access to key goods such as salt and herring helped secure Lübeck's ascent into trading greatness. The treaty signed in this period also ensured that these traders could travel peacefully. Henry the Lion is a good example for some of the protection provided to these merchants at this time, and this system is summed up by a good quote from Rolf Hamel Kiesel. Under his protection, the merchants traded and expanded their trade areas while negotiating the treaties he as ruler had concluded. In short, it was a typical relationship for the era, the ruler utilising his position of power and authority to provide protection to the long-distant merchants of his realm. End quote. But even this expansion of trade and opportunities in the main areas of Europe wasn't quite good enough for the traders and the nobility. Um, Why is that?
0: Well, as always, enough is never enough. There was more land to be explored, settled and turned into profit-making machines. The expansion of Christianity, conquest and settlement eastwards in Europe, in Slavic lands and areas like Lithuania, Latvia and Estonia was always swiftly followed by the merchants. Uh, in fact, merchants sometimes joined on these missions eastward as the nobility, church and land-owning farmers went on crusades to the east of Europe. For example, when the crusades went to Livonia, which is modern-day Latvia and Estonia, in the 1180s, the first missionary, a man called Meinhard went there, quote, in the company of merchants. The three groups of people, the church, the nobility and the merchants, all had vested interests in this crusade. Uh, the church for spreading Christianity and gaining more followers and, by extension, prestige and gold. The nobility to gain more land to directly rule and the merchants to have more customers and more access to raw materials and goods. Uh, Livonia was just one example of this expansion. And what was the best way to get to Livonia back then Well, going via Gotland. That would have been the suggested route on the Google Maps of uh, the 11 and 1200s.
1: May contain tolls, though.
0: (laughs) May contain tolls, yeah. German traders had already been using Gotland as a stopping off point to get to Novgorod And the founding of New Lübeck only increased the appetite for this route. Uh, The merchants who had previously met and traded in places like Schleswig, Old Lübeck and the Polish town of Wolin simply added Gotland to the list of places.
1: Yeah, and these German ones going from Lübeck to Novgorod have got this treaty, so it's encouraging them because they have protection and less taxes they have to pay. So yeah, this is just adding more and more people to this little club. And it was during this focus on Gotland that even the papacy began to notice Gotland and the influx of German merchants onto the island brought even more Christian settlers and more money. This meant that the number of churches on the island started to grow, and eventually we'll see those German churches being founded, like the example in episode 37, when Bishop Bielbu approves the first German church of St. Mary in Visby on Gotland. But it wasn't just with Gotland that the German trade was expanding. We saw in episode 32 that Berger Brosa signed Sweden's first trade deal with Germany and German traders when he was Jarl of Sweden. This was negotiated with the same Henry the Lion, linked to the free trade privileges Henry had granted to Swedish traders visiting Lübeck. By the start of the 1200s, German traders, craftsmen, merchants and even miners were moving to Sweden, increasing Sweden's local economy. German merchants set up in Kalmar in 1220 and, as we saw with Birger Jarl, were influential in the origins of Stockholm too.
0: And so by now, this system of trade has really started to settle in the Baltic Sea area and become very stable. Places like Visby, Novgorod and Smolensk, plus various places in England and Flanders, became the main points of contact in these long-distance trading operations. This long-distance trade was organized around caravans for land travel and large sea convoys for those going, well, over the Baltic Sea. Despite the various trade treaties signed between leaders and kings and merchants, it made sense to travel with companions. For centuries, merchants were allowed to carry a sword when traveling, as it was dangerous and you were at risk of robbery. Of course, some still decided to travel alone, for either speed or secrecy, but uh, in general, traders like to go in groups. Sea travel is most interesting for us in relation to Gotland, since it's an island. Uh, These convoys seem to have grouped together at Visby, so the ships travelled separately from Lübeck to Gotland, but then joined together before heading onwards to Riga and Novgorod. It happened at Gotland because it was such an important hub, and meant that ships could also sell some of their wares there and they could restock with more goods before continuing
1: onwards. It's interesting to see this change here taking place in Visby. These large convoys were also the first associations of early merchants that historians see as the precursors to the true Hanseatic League traders that will come in the future small companies of merchants dropped their competitiveness for a while and created larger associations for mutual protection. Rather than just each individual ship or each individual merchant trying to outdo each other, they realised working together sometimes might be better. But it wasn't just all about mutual protection at sea, but also in terms of business at their destination too. These associations, called Universitas Mercatorum, or merchant communities, were also able to create their own trade treaties, such as with the Prince of Smolensk in 1229. Then, traders from Riga, Visby, Lübeck, Suest, Munster, Dortmund and Bremen all came together to sign a treaty in Riga to gain favourable business terms and access to the Prince of Smolensk's land.
0: It was on Gotland that these organisations started to form – The major community was called the Association of Merchants from the Roman Empire Visiting Gotland. Not a super snappy name for your organization.
1: But it does what it says on the tin.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it's very descriptive. Uh, The Roman Empire, by the way, meaning the Holy Roman Empire, meaning Germany, essentially. Interestingly, though, these merchants were declaring that they were all connected Not through their own nationality, country of origin, or which goods they traded, but by a common trading destination, Gotland. It's kind of like you see Facebook groups called expats in Sweden, uh, where people are coming from all over the world, but coming together because of their destination, not their origin.
1: Yeah, and that's exactly it. This Gotland Association of Merchants started to act as a group and started governing itself. In addition to the treaty in Smolensk, they signed a trade treaty with Novgorod in 1191 and 1192, which they began as the three areas, and eventually even with the English king. A key reason for them coming together was, as we said, the location of Gotland, but also because native Gotland merchants were able to provide the ships that these German traders needed so much. Because remember, at the start, they got uh, Henry the Lion to write the letter to say, hey, we've got no ships, Mm. someone help us. At first, the Gotlandic merchants themselves provided all of these ships, but as time went on, mixed fleets began to exist, presumably uh, the Germans started buying some of their own. This practice of the Gotlanders transporting the merchants to and from Lübeck and then to Novgorod was even eventually extended to England too, so the Gotlanders themselves are the ones being sort of the taxi service (laughs) for these merchants.
0: They're just gaining wealth by uh, inventing a trade Uber service.
1: Yeah, exactly. And or like DHL. Um, (laughs) uh, Overall, this Gotland Trading Association lasts for a very long time and is seen as one of the most successful For early Hanseatic endeavours. It also eventually saw the political system change too. If we skip ahead just a few years from Birgit Jarl's death in 1266 up to 1280, we can see how the whole dynamic of power is starting to change, at least in relation to trade.
0: Yeah, and that's because in 1280, Lübeck and the German traders in Wiesbühn sealed a treaty, at uh, which Riga also joined two years later, a treaty that ensured the protection of merchants traveling between Ersund and Novgorod or across the entire Baltic Sea and all of its ports. That meant that the sea routes crisscrossing the Baltic Sea was now under direct protection of local trading associations, cities and municipalities instead of the kings of Denmark and Sweden and the princes of Novgorods and other Russian areas. This was a first and a big change. And if you think this could potentially cause trouble in the future, well, just keep listening to this podcast.
1: Yes, big things await because, yeah, these people are saying, well, we're going to protect ourselves, we're creating treaties with princes and things, and so the other princes and kings aren't exactly going to be necessarily too happy about this. And so we'll see uh, how the trading relationship between these new associations start to develop, especially on the island of Gotland in just a few decades' time. But for now, I think we're probably done with Gotland and the trade network across the Baltic Sea. It was extremely fun researching and writing this episode. I learned so much about very niche types of... Boats and where they would travel from, and looking at maps of these trade routes, and all this kind of stuff, which is really fun. And so, it was actually quite hard to summarize it all because you could actually, like a couple of these people who we read, write entire books just about this one tiny bit of period at the start of what will become the Hanseatic League. So, do read more if you feel like it. There's stuff out there to read. And if you want a list of everything that we've read, not just in this episode, but for previous episodes, we have that on our new website, which uh, we mentioned in the last episode. So just go to aflatpackhistoryofsweden.com and there's a sources page there, which we will include the stuff that we read for this episode on.
0: Indeed, and in this episode we've seen how Gotland started off like any other area in the Baltic Sea in the Stone Age and Bronze Age, before quickly becoming quite the hub for trade, exchange and archaeological finds from the Iron and Viking Ages. And this passion for trade really kicked into high gear as we moved into the second millennia, around the time of Udolf of Uh, Swedish kings got a bit involved with Gotland, but settled for receiving a bit of tax every now and then, as well as promises of military support from Gotland against non-Christians.
1: The Swedish church also gets involved on Gotland, but Gotland's attention is really focused on trade and this new exciting association with traders from Germany. This helps the island become a central hub for east-west trade, home to these dynamic new associations and becomes a facilitator of long-distance convoys. This all helps bring in a lot of money into the city of Visby, where German merchants build churches and help spread the money around. The trading association here helps expand Christian, noble and mercantile power across the eastern Baltic and bring in even more profit from places like Livonia. And it's all working out rather nicely and it's working out nicely for the podcast too because now we're up to speed with Gotland and the medieval trade network of the Baltic. We'll be able to pop in and out of it as we go and as things happen in the narrative. And uh, for next time we're going to finish off that puzzle to make sure we can do that with somewhere else in the Baltic and that's with Finland that we're going to look about next time.
0: Yeah, as always, thank you so much for listening. Do give us a review on whatever platform you're listening to us. And even just a rating on iTunes uh, if you're enjoying the podcast. You don't have to write a full review, you just click on the rating. Uh, We got our first ever one-star review a few weeks ago uh, after only five stars review up until now. So if you feel a bit sorry for us, uh, just scroll down. If you're listening on an iPhone or iPad and click five stars, Uh, you don't even have to write a review. It's nice and easy and will cheer us up.
1: Yes, Uh, it was a one-star rating. They didn't actually give a review, so we don't know why. Maybe they just pricked it by accident, but whoever they are, boo.
0: (laughs) Or you know, people are Or we don't
1: care. (laughs) Well, we (laughs) do
0: care, apparently. Well, we care
1: a bit, but not like, oh, no, we're not crying ourselves to sleep at night because of one one one-star review. Well,
0: speak of yourself. You are allowed to not like us. Yeah, absolutely. That is fair.
1: But it would be a bit weird to not like us, but keep listening.
0: yeah please only keep listening if you do like us uh but if you do like us then do please keep listening Uh, we'll see you in two weeks time
1: or in about 20 seconds if you're listening to more than one episode (laughs) at once. And uh, if you would like to get in touch in another way other than leaving a review, you can get in touch on our social media, on our Facebook or Twitter, or send us an email on flatpackhistorysweden at gmail.com, or check out our new website where we have all of those contact details and a lot more, including some fun maps, our episode pictures, and all that kind of stuff, which is aflatpackhistoryofsweden.com. And with that plug, I think we'll end this episode. Goodbye for now. Hey, (laughs) Dale. hug hub
0: becoming a hug hub <laughs> you you went to gotland and you got all the hugs you wanted this was pre covid so yeah. they did all the hugs
1: welcome to the hug hub
0: oh. I want to go to a hug hub. Isn't
1: that Moomin world?
0: Oh, it's Moomin world. If you go to Moomin world.
1: Oh, a hug hub. <laughs> <laughs> That's the best typo.
0: I also love that both of us have read through this yeah, like yeah. four times and not seen. And you have read it
1: out loud. Become
0: as well. a hug hub.
1: This was also at the same time. <laughs> I just can't get out the hug hub.
0: <laughs> oh.